Good morning, church. How are we doing this bright, sunny Sunday morning? Glad we get to be together. We are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We are down to the final chapters. It's been a marathon, and uh, we've talked about some tough stuff, things that has challenged us, things that are easy to be misunderstood, things that, uh, you know, we have to think about a little bit. And I think that's good. And I think that's some of what's going on as we are in chapter 14 today. So worship issues Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 14. Speaking in tongues, prophesying, women's roles. And I've reached the conclusion that Paul is trying to get me fired. (laughs) And the only possible way he could have made this harder for a Church of Christ preacher was if he also brought up something about instrumental music. So I'm, I'm joking a little bit. Paul didn't have my job in mind at all when he wrote that and said that. Uh, But with the love of God in our hearts, the word of God in our hands, the Bible, and the guidance of God and the Holy Spirit living in us, we don't have to be afraid of hard conversations. And we don't have to be afraid of dealing with the difficult things to understand. We just can jump into it and deal with them as best we are able to, and uh, to God be the glory with that. So in the beginning of chapter 14, Paul begins with this little phrase here that says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And I always just kind of ran right past that phrase, follow the way of love. But I think that's a key for helping us understand all of these things that we're about to talk about this morning. Uh, The only right way for a church or an individual to utilize the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, in a responsible way is through following the way of love. When we let go of the way of love, we tend to get ourselves in trouble. And if you can't remember the qualities of love, we just look back to chapter 13. Paul has them all lined out there for us. And if you need to look at a perfect example of love, where do you find a perfect example of love? Read the Gospels. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of love. Look at the witness and just think about the the ways that Jesus goes, the things he says, the ways he interacts with people. He is our perfect display of what love looks like in a human body. So in chapter 14, verse 2, we can kind of see Paul's concern with the use of gifts. Uh, Since you are eager for gifts of this spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. And again in verse 26, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And that's our context today. Under the umbrella of things that build up the church, Paul has a discussion about orderly worship or maintaining an order, uh, a specific order in worship. Uh, 
And this is a challenge for me. When your spirituality is all about you alone with Jesus, you are not mature. I don't, I don't, the church is annoying, those people there. I know so-and-so, they talk too much, that guy's a hypocrite, you know, Calvin's boring, whatever. Uh, and, and some of us approach church almost like we know it's, we know it's commanded, we know we're supposed to. I just, I'm an introvert, I love to be alone, those people are so no, nosy, you know, I don't like to break up my routine, whatever. The, but for us to be mature followers of Jesus Christ, <coughs> there has to be a ship, shift that takes place. See, the whole problem with things in Corinth were what? They had spiritual cliques. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm... They had spiritual cliques. They had a spiritual pecking order. Uh, I have the gift of tongues. Did you hear me? Look, I, I, I have these clear gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm valuable. I'm important. I... And that spiritual pecking order had become something toxic in that church. And they were, they were blinded by their own pride to the needs of the body of Christ. That is the danger of what happens when we lose the way of love. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, good job. Sometimes I just need to know you guys are alive. So, <laughs> The spiritually mature... They, as I've grown in my faith and uh, what I do in my role as minister, I, my understanding of maturity has changed over the years. And I used to think the spiritually mature were those who were the best teachers who could really uh, wow me and amaze me with what they were saying, with what they were doing. They, the people who are just had that special quality of wow. But as I've grown, I think the most mature among us are those people who are clearly sold out for the good of the Lord's church. They're men and women who deeply love the Lord's church. And the Lord's church, we need a lot of help. And those who have given them, and it's a, a movement from, I don't need to be the person who wows everyone. And you begin to be a servant. What can I do? not to have everything the way I would like. It's that shift from being a religious consumer to someone who takes up their cross and is willing to give of themselves, even self-sacrificially, because they are following the way of love. They are following the example of Jesus Christ. So Paul's concern in our text today is for orderly worship, uh, considering others in our worship as we follow the way of love. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at most should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet or hold their peace in the church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 27 and 28. So without interpretation, tongue speaking, it does not edify or instruct the church. That's what Paul is saying. 
The person speaking a tongue may be personally edified, uh, but the benefits are missed by others who are there. And if the gift of tongues is being used in a way in order to show off a spiritual status, hey, look at what I can do. I, I'm an important person here. I'm, any, any of the gifts of the Spirit, even down to teaching and uh, the areas of responsibility and ministry that we've been given, you can actually use gifts of the Holy Spirit in ways that build up your own pride. And it's subtle, and it's something that happens subtly in our thinking, in our mind. But you can use things of God, and you can even use the Scripture in this way, that, that you actually are working against the way of love. And you're harming the body of Christ when you do that. And you will be held accountable for that. So boy, I would have, just as an aside, I would have loved to sit in that church service at Corinth because it was wild, it sounds like to me. I don't think anyone was falling asleep in that church. So Paul is concerned that if you're going to be doing this, uh, there has to be an interpreter there. And you have to do this one at a time. So imagine people are making some kind of tongues in this case, not in the case of Acts, they were actual languages, but tongues, as we can read from the context in Corinthians here, that this was some kind of noise being made that was unintelligible to people, except that if it was interpreted, someone could interpret that. So imagine all, and something that's unintelligible, it's, it's noise to us. Maybe it sounds in the form of a language, it's some kind of... Uh, uh, and that noise, if they're not doing it one at a time, if multiple people are doing that at the same time, I can imagine that that would build up. And so Paul says two or three at most, only if there's someone who can interpret that. What does an interpreter do? They make something that is unintelligible able to be understood. And that is the blessing of what Amanda helps do with us. Uh, and Charlie, and, uh, and the, what hap Kathy's helping with that screen there, that there's an interpretation of things that's going on. And there were people, either the person who spoke a tongue or uh, other people in the audience, that unless they're able to make that noise intelligible, able to instruct, Paul says, you don't do it. Just leave that alone. So he is trying to limit, and when you have, think about multiple people doing this at the same time, and uh, they're not doing this one at a time, and they're not doing it two or three at a time, the assumption is they were doing this more. It probably was a pretty wild, noisy church experience. And it had gotten to the point where it had taken away from the order of worship, where somehow glory is being taken off, the focus is off God, and suddenly on the, can you imagine what this is going on and you don't speak tongues? You just sit there and you listen. And you listen. And you check your sundial watch and you keep listening. You don't know what's happening. And, well, sister so-and-so has really worked up today because she was going for a half hour strong. And you just, and then there's nothing left. You know, it's just, it could just take over, and I can just imagine this scenario working out in that way. Uh, 
But also, I would note, Paul recognizes tongue speaking as a gift of the Holy Spirit. His problem is not that it was being, that it was happening. His problem is it was being done in such a way that most of the people in worship were just being completely left behind. It was unintelligible to them. And suddenly, when an interpreter is there, something that was previously just noise to everyone but the speaker, suddenly now it is available to the entire congregation. To use Paul's language from verse 16, suddenly now, with interpretation, everyone can speak the amen. I can say amen because it's intelligible to me. And that is Paul's whole argument about why prophecy is superior to tongues when there's not an interpreter. I think that chapter 14 makes that point pretty clearly. And it's not just tongues that Paul is interested in limiting. He has a concern as well for how much prophecy is taking place in the church. He says this, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. An interesting thing about prophecy as it takes place in the New Testament. The church is called and invited to be in judgment on those prophecies. They are called to use a gift of discernment, those who have a gift of discernment. They're, they're, are, uh, they're called to sit and weigh what happens in these prophecies. So from what I understand uh, biblically about the way teaching works, the way preaching works, the way prophecy works in the New Testament, uh, oftentimes there's not hard lines between those roles. Uh, many times prophecy, I'm convinced from the context that we've looked at here and other places, it would involve bringing scripture and teaching and applying it to some contemporary issue or, or, or concern of the church. And so a person who is uttering prophecy, ideally, I mean, the, the Spirit does amazing things, no doubt, but the person who utters a prophecy would be someone who is very familiar with and steeped in the Word of God. They would know the Scriptures very well. And uh, they speak this prophecy. Uh, they would have a thorough knowledge. And they could also, through the gift of the Spirit, apply the, the words of that prophecy to the instruction or the encouragement of a church. And I think sometimes, at my best, uh, my role as a minister overlaps with this. Sometimes I, I say some stuff that sounds really amazing and smart. And it's not Calvin. And that's one of the things I love about preaching so much, is that the Lord gets to use some of those words. Not all of them. If it's something that's dumb, if it's something that's against Scripture in some way, that's all on Calvin. The Spirit saves me from a lot of that. And uh, the Spirit works in a way that God's people are instructed, that God's people are encouraged. And uh, I love that about getting to preach and teach 
And that's one of the things that we need to constantly be doing as a church is discipling each other in, in those ways. Uh, the Keith Lancaster event. We disciple each other in praises we sing to God. In the cl- I taught class this morning. I'm sorry for all of you who had, had to get a double dose of Calvin this morning. Um, Mike teaches back there. That instruction helps encourage the people of God. What happens in all of our Sunday school classes? What happens in our special events that are coming up like VBS? And there's sign-ups out there. More of you who need to sign up for VBS, we could use the help. All of those things are ways that we, the Spirit of God is using that to disciple those who are youngest among us to the oldest among us. And there is a place for all of that to be taking place. So prophecy in the church, you are called to sit in judgment on that. So when prophecy is happening, when preaching is happening, when teaching is happening, all of the various forms of ministry of the word, we should weigh those words. False teaching is a real thing. Now, I came up with this list and here, I'm, I feel like I'm giving you ammunition to come with me, <laughs> come at me with me. I, I mean that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but we are called, uh, it talked about in chapter 12, discernment, discernment, judging the spirits, and sitting specifically in judgment on words of prophecy in our teaching. Uh, here are some things that I would ask you to think about and question. Now, I have to, if you have something you need to say to me as someone who is teaching, I I hope you know you're welcome to do that. And some of you, I couldn't stop you even if I tried. And and there are always things that I have to sit and weigh, and sometimes there are things that I have to dismiss. But here are some things that you need to think about as you sit in judgment or when you discern what is happening in our church worship together, when the ministry of the Word is there. I would say this even includes the theology and the words of the music that we are singing. Who is being glorified? God or the speaker? Does the message that is being brought, does it bring clarity or is it a distraction? Is the message in line with revelation that's already been given? If it's against the Scriptures in some way, where is the problem? If it's me uttering that word and it's against the Scripture, and there has to be an adjustment that's made there, what is the fruit of applying that message to your life? If you actually live into those words, if you actually do some of the stuff that I'm talking about, What's the fruit of it? Does it make a difference? Are you being humbled? Are you being encouraged? Are you being challenged? Is some of the stuff of your own heart being revealed to you? If that's happening, that's a level of authenticity that you can say yes, and I can say amen to that. Are your thoughts turning to God? Are you thinking about Christ and His sacrifice? Are you thinking about the Holy Spirit and what He's doing in your life among you? Are you growing in understanding? Are you being reminded of God's plans and purposes? And I didn't write this down. You can just keep going with this. 
Are you moving away from just you and Jesus on the boat and beginning to live your life more self-sacrificially for the good of the church? Have you found a way to help and bless this church? Or are you just consuming? Are you just going through the motions? Well, when a ministry of the word comes and is shared, we are invited to sit in judgment, not in the sense of being mean about it, and not about being ornery about it, but in making sure we are leading, we are being led in a path that honors and glorifies God and is filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we have the love of God, the way of love as our guide, we don't have to be afraid of the tough conversations. I don't have to be afraid of giving you a list of criteria (laughs) to go after me with because it's bigger than me. Who is being glorified? The speaker or God? The song leader or God? The communion thought bringer or God? The person who's leading our vacation Bible school or God? Two or three prophets should speak, and others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. Okay. Anyone who exercises a gift of prophecy, they still have a degree of self-control that they are called to exercise. Uh, You are still responsible for what you say and do to the congregation. And the spirit of the prophets, which you can think of maybe that as the institution of prophecy, it has its own boundaries and controls that need to be observed and followed. And if the goal of what we do here is orderly worship in the most excellent way of love, if the goal is orderly worship for the sake of building up the body of Christ and building up and encouraging the church, if that's your goal then even someone as amazing as a prophet can be interrupted and can sit down and hold their peace and allow someone else to speak. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, They should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So there are a number of exegetical issues raised by this text. And I'm going to give you my opinions about these things and help try to unpack this for us. And maybe there's not enough there to make everyone happy, but everyone just a little bit angry. I don't know. I know I'm not smart enough and our attention spans are not long enough uh, to go through all of the ins and outs of this passage. Trees, entire forests have been cut down to print commentaries to discuss 
these words of controversy. But some way, in some way, something about the way women were behaving in the Corinthian church, it displayed that they were not in submission to their husbands. And it was enough of an issue that it affected orderly worship. The focus was coming off of God, and now suddenly something about this husband-wife relationship is being displayed out in front of everyone in such a way that it's disgraceful or shameful. And I think Paul hinted at this already in what he said in chapters 11 about women and men, the way they go about praying and prophesying. So our first issue, Paul says, as the law says. What law is he referring to? We don't exactly know. Uh, It could be that Paul has Genesis 3.16 in mind because he's referred back to certain things, the order of Genesis. Uh, People of a Jewish mind, they always seem to go toward Genesis, and they see things there, and they build foundations off things there that uh, it just kind of used to miss completely, but always kind of seems to go back to Genesis. But we don't know. We don't know exactly what verse Paul has in mind. So Genesis 3.16, one of the issues with the fall, there's all of these bad things that come when sin comes. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now there's some interpretive issues with that. How are we to understand that? How are we to apply that? But there is some kind of reality that it speaks to in this situation. But if it is Genesis 3.16, it doesn't tell women to be silent. And you know what? There is no other verse in the entire Old Testament that commands a woman to be silent. So it could be that Paul was thinking more generally about women not officiating in the temple worship. It was men who did that. Or maybe something related to the way that the priesthood worked. So that's one issue. What does Paul mean by the law? Another issue, Paul has already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that women were involved publicly in praying and prophesying. And he didn't care that it was happening. His concern, rather, is the way that it was happening. It was somehow, without a head covering, it was somehow disrespecting that marriage bond or relationship in a way that was becoming a distraction for the church. Every man or husband who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman or wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, uncovered dishonors her head. So there's some kind of cultural thing that is going on. Was this long hair? Was this an actual veil? There was some symbol of family authority that the men were not supposed to wear, but when women prayed and prophesied, it looks to me like they were supposed to recognize that, that, that authority uh, that comes uh, in a marriage, that somehow that marriage had to be honored. So if Paul allows this in chapter 11, Is he suddenly forbidding it now in chapter 14? That's a pretty quick turnaround. So how do you hold 
chapter 11 and chapter 14 together. And that's why I say I'm not smart enough to understand all of this, but I will give you my best guesses with this. He didn't care that it was happening in chapter 11, but the way it was happening. If Paul was issuing a command in chapter 14 that was forbidding women to speak at all in any and every circumstance universally for the church of all time, then he's not just going against what he has already said in chapter 11. He's going against clear examples from other scriptures as well, if that's what's taking place here. What do I mean? Well, let's look at a few of these. I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta lay some of the groundwork so you can be responsibly judging this for yourself. Acts 1.14, and these were with one accord and they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So in Acts chapter one, we know that this was happening, that the women were praying together when they met. Acts chapter 2, 15 through 18. There's a prophecy from Joel, Old Testament prophet, who is being quoted here now in the book of Acts. And this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. When the Holy Spirit comes, and we are in those last days, some things begin to change. Next verse. And there was a prophetess, Anna. Anna. Hi, Anna. The daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So she had been a widow for a very long time. Her husband had died very young. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and in prayer night and day. Where is that happening? In temple, in, the, in that worship. She was constantly involved in that. And then Acts chapter 21, it says, uh, Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Four unmarried daughters who prophesied. All right, so we have that witness of Scripture. Let me add some further complication. Are we ready? This is a complication with understanding the Greek. The word for wife and women is the same word. 
And you can only understand that through the context of what is being said there. Wives should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should, they should ask their own men at home. Who's your own men? You got a man. Who's your man? For it is disgraceful for a wife slash woman to speak in the church. So this is an interpretive issue again. Uh, you have to figure out the best translation of this word based on the context. So uh, for my part, I do not think 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 34, and 35 is a prohibition of women speaking and prophesying or praying and worship in every place for all time. I think, based on the context of these verses, that what is being prohibited here is women should not be speaking up and judging the prophecies that are taking place, especially if their husband is the one offering that prophecy. Now, there are other verses that relate to women's role that need to be dealt with responsibly in their own right. I'm just giving you my best understanding from my studies here. As this case is in chapter 14, I do not think it uh, contradicts what Paul has said in chapter 11 about women praying and prophesying. I can almost imagine this scenario being prayed out where brother so-and-so receives a word that he feels inclined to share with the congregation. And so that brother, he goes and he gets up and he says, uh, as a congregation, we need to renew our efforts at serving one another in this church. We need to serve each other with greater fervor so that the body of Christ may be built up. And then from across the room, his wife speaks up and says, Yes, Lord, amen. And let it begin with my lazy husband helping do the dishes. Can you see how that focus could easily be taken off God? and what is happening in the church. I think that's more akin to this context and the situation that is taking place uh, in chapter 14. It is all relating to this issue of order. And I think the church, a lot of times churches would sit in judgment of what was being said, and they might have done that as an active part of their worship service that they would weigh that out and maybe speak on that as a part of the worship. And that women were not invited to comment in that time, especially if it was their husband who was offering that. And if, they're, if it's displaying some dysfunction or problem in the marriage, if it was a woman who had this kind of pride, I'm free to do whatever I want in the Holy Spirit, Paul says that is becoming a distraction. It's becoming disgraceful. I think that is what's going on in this text. So let's look again, again at this context and I put it all together so we can see it better there's these three issues that come up 
If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. Let them hold their peace, some translations say. I like that. Who holds their peace? A tongue speaker who has no interpreter. Who holds their peace? A prophet who has another person been given a word that they are told to be silent and hold their peace so that that other person can speak that word. Who else is told to hold their peace? The wives should keep silent in the churches. If there's anything that they want to inquire about, let them ask their husbands at home. So, married women whose husband is a believer, they have an avenue to potentially have their questions and their concerns answered. Don't they? That's what Paul is saying. But what about unmarried women? What about women who are married to unbelievers? What about women who are divorced? What about women who are widows? This is just my personal thought. I think there is a special responsibility for elders, me as a minister. I would even say this includes elders' wives, ministers' wives, and just more spiritually mature people in general, especially more spiritually mature women, to welcome the inquiries and concerns of those who don't have a readily uh, available listening and wise ear. Those of us who have some maturity in Christ need to avail ourselves to brothers and sisters in Christ so that they have an avenue to get their questions answered, to share the concerns of their heart. That is the way the way of love works. That is the way a healthy body works. So that's an aside. But clearly the context of the second half of chapter 14 is Paul's concern for maintaining order in the worship so that as many people as possible, they can speak the amen, and as he says uh, somewhere in that chapter, that unbelievers who come into your midst, that they can proclaim God is among them. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the freedom of the Spirit together with an order that allows us, because of love, to be able to hold our peace in certain circumstances that would allow our worship to flourish to the point that people who come into this building in this place, that they would be moved to proclaim, wow, God is among them. That's what a healthy church can become. That's what a healthy church can do. And then Paul goes on in our text. He says, Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? I don't think he's just talking about women or prophets or tongue speakers in this case. I think this is a rhetorical question addressed to the entire Corinthian church. You Corinthians are not the only church out there. All of this didn't begin and end with you here in Corinth. 
Therefore, our order in worship, it needs to express the most excellent way of love. So here's my conclusion. You can't address 1 Corinthians 14 apart from 1 Corinthians 13. Love understands that there are bigger things going on than your personal wants and desires. Tongue speaking, it may be personally fulfilling. Uh, There may be benefit from that. uh, Paul's not trying to cancel that out. He's He's trying to give space in the worship service for that not to dominate and become a distraction. It is clearly a gift of the Holy Spirit that is undeniable. And yet, because of the way of love, I might have that amazing gift, but I am able in this place to hold my peace. Because of love, a person who is giving a prophecy is willing to be interrupted by another person. Because of love, A wife will not shame her husband publicly in worship, but will hold her peace, keep her peace. Because of love, a husband will not dismiss his wife's voice, but will listen to the issues and concerns that she raises in the home. He's called to do that because of the way of love. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Again, I don't think this is just about orderly worship or an issue with tongues, prophecy, and wives in judgment on prophecy. I think what Paul is asking them to acknowledge is the entirety of what he said, specifically what he calls the most excellent way. And now I will show you the most excellent way. And the beginning of chapter 14, verse one, follow the way of love. I think it all comes down to that. Then he says, but if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Is Paul making a threat? I don't think he's making a threat. I think he's talking about the reality of love. You can choose to ignore love. You can choose not to feed love. You can choose not to seek love. You can try to live your spirituality like it's just you alone with Jesus on a boat and you don't give a rip about the church or other people there and you never think about them because they're difficult and they're annoying. But if you give up on the way of love, in the end, you're going to be irrelevant. In the end, you will be ignored. In the end, you will be nothing just a clanging symbol making noise if you're not following the way of love. And those who are the most spiritually mature among us here at the Eugene Church of Christ, 
their maturity and status is not measured by how impressive and charismatic their gifts may be. I think their maturity is measured that their lives are clearly given over for the good of the church, that their lives are so full of the Holy Spirit, that they are clearly people of self-sacrifice and love and are willing to give up and lay aside their personal rights so that their brothers and sisters in Christ can flourish. That's the example of our Lord. And as we follow that way of love, I think the things that are broken among us, they'll begin to be fixed. And we don't have to fear the hard questions and the tough situations because God will bring us where we need to go. And I think when we begin to get the way of love right among us, that those who come into our midst, they will worship God exclaiming, God is really among you. God is clearly at work at this place. That is what we are being invited into. Jim, you can come up. Our last verse that we'll deal with this morning. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of peace. And the order that we seek in our worship here together It needs to make space for the most excellent way of love to blossom and grow. And that love that we have for God, it should be expressed and shared among us to the praise and glory of our everlasting Father. So whatever needs you might have this morning, we always offer an invitation here to put the Lord on in baptism, to actively step into that new life of following the way of love. Baptism is a door where that happens. If you need the prayers of the church, the way of love, we get corrected again and again when we give ourselves over to a life of prayer. And repentance, it's not a burden. It's a tremendous gift for us when we follow the way of love. The way of love helps helps us correct our course. The way of love helps us follow God's scripture. The way of love helps us be self-sacrificial with each other. That is what we are being invited into. And I hope that that is the order that our worship expresses. To God be the glory. Let's go ahead and stand and sing together. Three forty-three. The way of the cross.